we're going to talk about the Bible today, but before I want to start talking about that part of the Bible, let's just talk a bit about the Bible in general. Uh, the Bible's an interesting book. Uh, it's one that's very much loved by some people. Uh, it's not very much liked by others. It's inspirational. It's informative. It's uh, a bit puzzling. Uh, it's ancient. It's relevant. Um, and one of the main activities of our worship and our gatherings together as a church is we do read it and we explore the scriptures together. And what we believe is that this process of reading and listening and reflecting and applying the scriptures together is one of the key spiritual disciplines that we have as a church and something that leads to growth in our relationship to God through Jesus. Uh, and so that's something we're very committed to and we do a lot of. Um, but many people, I think, find that the Bible, as they read it for themselves, is very hard to understand. It's not always a user-friendly book. It's not always accessible. And for starters, you know, the Bible is not actually a single book. I mean, you're probably aware of this. It's actually a compilation of 66 different books of different kinds, uh, written by different authors over a period of more than 1,000 years. And it was written a long time ago uh, in a different culture on the other side of the world and in a language that is native to none of us here. And so it can be hard for a lot of us to get a grip, what is the Bible actually about as we start to read it? What is the overall message that this book is giving us? And so one of the ways that we do that to, to kind of break that particular problem is to carefully listen as we read to key themes and, that emerge across the Bible in the various books um, across time. So one of those key themes, and in fact one, probably among one of the largest and the most prominent themes in the Bible, is the idea of creation which I've decided to make this our theme at St Mark's here this year as we look at the Bible together. So when I say creation, what do I mean? I think the theme of creation in the Bible is the reflection and discussion that we have there about what is the relationship between God and things that are not God. So what's the relationship between God and things that aren't God? So you know, when we talk about creation, we're talking about what's the purpose of the universe? Um, what's our place in the universe? How do we live? What does it mean to be in a proper relationship with God? All that's in creation. And those questions bring up a lot of other things behind them as well, a lot of other themes. So when we talk about creation, we start talking about topics like, well, what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to understand the world that we're in? Part of thinking about creation is what does it mean to live ethically in this world? What's the way we should actually live in harmony with the way the world is? To talk about creation is to talk about justice. What, what is it, how should the world be? How does God intend the world to be? And how, sh how is that happening? So creation asks us, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to know God? Who is he? So across the year, we're going to be looking at parts of the Bible that actually address questions relating to creation and reflect on those together. So we're going to start this journey at the very beginning of the Bible, and it's a very good place to start I, uh, here, to start at the very beginning. Um, now, the first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis, and it, the, the word Genesis roughly means it's the book of origins, it's the book of beginnings, um, and it's the book that really sets up the themes, the characters, and the story of the Bible as a whole. And so this term, we're going to be looking at a particular section of Genesis, we're going to be looking at the first 12 chapters. And those um, books, essentially, uh, chapters essentially function as a kind of prologue to the Bible. Um, if you're familiar with a prologue in, in a in what it is in a film or in books. A prologue is kind of something that provides a backstory of context that enables you to understand the story when it starts. So, for example, I mean, is anyone here familiar with the Phantom comic books? We're a bit old now, but yeah, there's a few here. So those, those books always used to start with a prologue, which was um, the phrase, which I always remember, it says, for those who came in late. 
and it gives you a little backstory of the Phantom and how he became. So you came in late, that's the prologue. Um, for Star Wars fans, you know the bright yellow text that crawls up the screen before the movie starts, that's the prologue to tell you what to expect. Um, you know, or if you're watching a drama series you know, on TV, you get the recap where they tell you what happened last week and those sorts of things. So I think the Genesis 1 to 12 is essentially that. It's a prologue to the Bible and it sets up the main story of the Bible and that's the story of the nation of Israel and their relationship to God. That's the main story of the Bible. And so in these chapters in the next few weeks, we're going to look at various stories that are here and they're intended to provide us with I think a background framework for understanding what is the story of Israel in the Old Testament actually about? What is this story about? So chapters 1 to 11 of this book is essentially a summary of the entire history of the world up until the time of Abraham. So in Genesis 12 then, which we'll finish with, God actually calls Abraham to come to follow him, to have faith in him and to start this new people. And that's where the main story of the Bible actually begins, I think, in Genesis 12. And I think then if we understand these stories from Genesis appropriately, we'll understand more the rest of the Bible, what comes after that, including the teaching of Jesus. So this is why it's important to get to grips with that. And so today I'm going to start with, by thinking about Genesis chapter 1, which we just read from. And this particular chapter is a description of the creation of the cosmos. And it looks back to the very origin or the genesis of everything that exists. And it talks about the fundamental relationship between God and the universe. Now, it's a very interesting chapter to read. I think it's a very profound one. But it's one that's caused a lot of controversy and a lot of confusion for many people as they've read it over the years. So I want to address it carefully this morning and hopefully open it up for us a bit more to understand the message that is in it, okay? So, and so before we get into the text, it's really worth acknowledging the elephant in the room in the topic on this. Um, the, unfortunately, the elephants come in day six, so I'm, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but um, as you're probably aware, um, the origins of the universe, its age and its history, uh, it's an area where there's a lot of disagreement between Christian people. Um, particularly, how do we understand the meaning of the first few chapters of Genesis um, and the relationship between this text and the kind of progressive scientific discoveries that we have had about the nature of the universe around. And that particular controversy, it's been at its height in the last couple of hundred years um, since the rapid growth of modern science, and particularly in the areas of physics and geology and biology and things like that. And you can think of such events, of course, like the publication of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin in 1859, and the theory of evolution, there's been a lot of conversation around that. And that implications of that theory have been widely discussed in the church, both positively and negatively, since that time. And there's been a lot of debate over the years about the proper relationship between that kind of science and the Christian view of creation in the Bible. And many people have very strong opinions about this topic. And so that's why this issue has been described as the battle for the beginning in some respects. I think there's a book called that. Um, a lot of conversation about it. It's a debate really over whether a Christian view of creation is compatible with modern science and its premises. And there's lots of important issues that are part of that conversation. Um, and so now at this point in time, you can find a great spread of opinions in the church um, on this matter. And those range from uh, the belief that some people have that Genesis, as we've just read, describes very straightforwardly the material origins of the universe at a time in the not too distant past, perhaps several thousand years ago. Um, and that we should reject a lot of other science as mistaken that contradicts that. Um, on the other hand, you can find many Christians who have a sort of a wholehearted embrace of modern science and I think those things are in harmony with the Bible and the Christian faith. 
Um, now, I expect that that spectrum is probably represented here in this church this morning um, in various ways. And so I, I really want to say that just to get ahead of the idea that the purpose of this is to raise the battle for the beginning up at St. Mark's um, and to say that people need to take a particular view on science in the Bible today in this church. Um, that's not where I want to go with this. Um, as I'll explain a bit more in a minute, I think that uh, the endeavours of modern science to understand the physical co- nature of the cosmos, it's not actually directly related to what Genesis is actually talking about here. Um, the Genesis one is talking about different issues to that, I believe. Um, and I'm also not an expert scientist myself, so I'm not here, I can't really tell you what to believe. Um, but I would encourage you, it is an interesting topic, and if it is interesting you, that we should engage with these questions of science and the Bible openly, critically, and um, listening to each other. You know, I find science very interesting, the nature of the universe, it's a fascinating thing. Um, very worthwhile spending time on. Um, but I think, though, that when we enter into the world of Genesis chapter 1, we're actually entering a different space of conversation altogether than that. Uh, one that's more about ph- philosophical things, theological concerns, and personal and spiritual concerns. Um, and what I'm interested in, the approach I take with this, is to try to read these Bible passages in their proper context and to understand what the writers were trying to say and what questions they, w- they were answering. Why is this part of Scripture? And you can ask those things without engaging in a battle for the beginning or arguing with about science. Um, now, you might find as you go along that you disagree with things I say or that you disagree with other members of the congregation about it. If that's the case, I'd encourage you, firstly, just to think, not I'm not trying to convince other people what's right, but I'm actually asking questions. Well, why do people believe what they do and how did they come to that belief? What motivates us to believe certain things and why, why do we think it's important? And, you know, how can we learn together as we go on? I think that's important. So having said all that, (laughs) let's actually look at this creation story in Genesis. So obviously, as we read it, the main part of the story is a daily progression over the seven days in which we move from the start of it, there's this empty, formless nothingness at the beginning, to the completed cosmos at the end of this week of uh, creation. And over each day, we hear each day a new element is added until everything's ready on the seventh day that God comes to rest from his work with creation. So what's the point of this story and why is it written in this particular way with these um, stages? I think the best way that I've come across to understand this passage is that it's actually echoing the type of description that would be written in ancient cultures about the building and construction of a temple. Okay? The text actually sounds like the kind of liturgy, you know, the songs, the poems that would be sung when a temple was first completed and worship began there. It has that in common with a lot of other texts of the same time. You know, and temples were very important structures in the ancient world. They were the places, this is where humans and gods come together and we do our business together with them. This is where heaven and earth meet in this place. And those temples were at the centre of cities, they were the centre of the civilisation. And ancient temples themselves were often structured to be like a small replica of the world, of the cosmos, you know, the way they were laid out and decorated as a mini, a mini cosmos within. And so the idea is that Genesis 1 is essentially describing the cosmos we live in as if it were a temple that were being constructed for the glory and presence of God. And many scholars believe this part of Genesis was actually written by the priests who were the leaders of worship in the temple for Yahweh. And if you compare that, um, you can look at the last chapters of Exodus where it describes the building of the tabernacle by Moses And you see the process that the Israelites went through of building the tabernacle stage by stage and and to the point 
where it was ready for the presence of God to descend. And it's very similar to the cosmic um, picture here in Genesis 1, if you want to compare that. So I just want to show you, this is a picture here. It might be hard to see in, in, in detail, but this is a picture, I think, of what the cosmos that's described in Genesis would actually look like on the sixth day when it's completed. Okay, so you can see it's kind of like a snow globe. Um, um, this is a fairly standard ancient cosmology of the time in that area of the world. Um, and this is what people of the time, when they looked around them, this is what the world appeared to be when they saw them. And they drew conclusions about the structure of the world uh, through it. Now, um, I don't actually, of course, believe this is what the actual universe looks like. But as someone who enjoys fantasy novels, I find it very beautiful, very compelling. And I kind of wish that this was what the world looked like, because um, I think it's very nice. Um, and you can see that this structure that they've got, the waters above, the waters below, there's the, the, the uh, vault here, the dome, and there's the sky and everything underneath it. Um, we actually sang about that in Indescribable at the beginning. You know, who's seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? Well, they're somewhere up above the firmament of the sky, and that's where that um, image is coming from. So you can see it, though. This appears to be like a structure, like a tent or something um, like you might build a house, like an igloo or something like that. And so gradually over Genesis 1, over the six days, all the elements that we observe in the cosmos around us are kind of formed and placed in their proper position in this uh, building ready for God. So order and shape is, you know, there's this primordial sea with nothingness and it's, it's kind of shaped into something. Um, light is created to make things visible. And there's a space with a dome which is called the vault in our translations, which is made in the middle of these waters to create a space for the sky. Now, um, interestingly about that, I heard this Christmas, uh, that in the Middle Ages in England, uh, the dome of the sky, the vault, was actually called the Welkin. So I thank you to Ray for pointing this out to me. Um, that the original lyrics of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you know, the carol, were actually, the first line was, Hark how all the Welkin rings. Um, you know, like, listen, the skies are resounding because Jesus is coming. I think they made a good change because we might not be singing it these days if it's, a, you know, a hark how all the welkin rings. Um, but that, that's what they were talking about. Anyway, so after that's been formed, the land then we hear emerges from the water and on it start to grow vegetation and birds and fish and animals. And the lights in the sky you can see are placed in their positions, the stars and the moon and the, and the um, sun. And at the end then, human beings, uh, the image of God, are actually placed and put in this, in this temple. Um, because the idea of the image of God that we read about, it's often been related to the idea of a temple, again. So, because, you know, in a temple, generally, the people would place images or statues of the God that was to be worshipped there. So, in the cosmic temple of Genesis, human beings themselves are the images of God that is placed there to show the God that he is. Um, and then on the seventh day, that's the climax of the whole process, and on this day, God rests, we hear, enters into the world, and he comes to this temple to live with people. So I hope you can hear that story. Um, now, in Australia, we're not temple people. We're not used to hearing these things. This might be why we don't necessarily hear this when we read the text. Um, but I want to apply, if you apply that to some of our common experiences, just think about the description you might give about building a house and the stages that you go through in doing that, you know. Well, we first we built the foundation, we made sure everything was okay, we built the frame, then we built the inner rooms and all the structure in it, and we put in the fittings and we decorated it and made sure it was beautiful. And then when everything was ready, as owners, we moved in and we took up residence. And I think in Genesis 1, that's what God's saying. After all this, God is making a home for himself in the universe to move into. So 
Now, if we read Genesis 1 in context then, which is, I think, what I'm trying to do, we can see that there are a few things that this creation picture does for us and why it's in the Bible. Because it provides an interpretation of the world we see around us that is based on the experience of knowing God and worshipping him. I think that's what the writer of Genesis intended to do. So one of the key things that we can notice in this text is that it kind of undercuts some of the other contemporary religious ideas in pagan uh, worship of the time. So it's actually a very strong statement of belief in a particular kind of God and his relationship to the world, and it was very different to the other creation stories of the time. Um, So in Genesis, there's no, as there are in some other myths, no pre-creation war between the gods, you know, where the world is made out of the remnants of a cosmic battle. This is what it was in the Babylonian myth. Actually, that the world was made out of the body of a dead god, you know. We're kind of this second-hand trash, you know, world. Um, No, Genesis says the the cosmos is actually a good place. It's an ordered place. And it's the precious creation of God, and he delights in it. We know that because we know him. Um, But it also teaches, and it's intended, I think, to show that the creation itself is not divine. The world is not God. Because the sun, for instance, and the moon and the stars that are made on the fourth day, they are not literal gods, and they were literal gods in other, in other religions. They were things that were objects of worship. But we hear in Genesis they're not to be worshipped. They are just the beautiful servants of God, just as we are, and they have their own place in the world. They give light and structure to the seasons below. So Genesis says to us that the world we live in is a place full of beauty. It's a, place, it's a temple for God. And it's a place for us to live in harmony with him and with each other. So the world is actually sacred in the sense that it is set apart for God and set apart for his purposes. And this sacred cosmos then is actually the setting for the story of the Bible that comes after it. That's the world in which we live. And so, just to be clear, of course, all those points I've just said, they're not related at all to the particular scientific cosmology about the age or the structure of the universe that we believe in. They are reflections on the spiritual meaning and intention behind the world we see around us. And that this picture of the cosmic temple that Genesis has, it's a way of viewing the world in which we live on based on experience of God and his goodness to us. And I think it actually invites us then into spiritual experiences. It invites us into practical uh, ways of living. That's going to be important in the next couple of chapters as well. Um, Because really our attitude to the world around us and what we should be doing in it and to it is a lot different, isn't it? If we believe that the world has a sacred function and purpose for God, then if we believe it's just a physical lump of matter that we can do things with, isn't it? Um, and for instance, this is, should be the root, I think, of Christians' concern for ecology and for environmental concerns and for looking after the world. It's God's world. So that's, I think, the, the, the picture of the creation in Genesis 1. It's a cosmic vision. But it's not the end of the cosmic vision in the Bible that we find. And as, as I said earlier, the doctrine of creation, the idea of creation, it's essentially about what can we say about our relationship between God and the world? and between God and things that aren't God. That's really what creation is about. And one of the things that the creation story in Genesis points us towards, it's, a bit in, it's not directly there, but it, if you think about it, it comes out, is that the God that we worship, the God we read about there, is obviously so much greater, infinitely greater than we can understand. Too great to be even contained by the, the limitless universe in which we live. Um, 
But it also leads us to hope that God is actually really close and intimately involved in the world and wants to be part of it, closer than we can imagine as well. And there's those two ideas, and they're sort of opposite, but they actually go along together across the scriptures in many various ways. And they come together, of course, in a very amazing way uh, in Jesus Christ himself. So I want to read to you from the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. And as I read this, I want you to read, have Genesis 1 in mind. So John starts his book by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And he goes on in verse 14 to say, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only, one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you can hear, can't you? You can see it. John starts his gospel about Jesus with the very same words as Genesis starts, in the beginning. So it's obviously for him, it's a retelling of the creation story. But a new angle emerges here in John that isn't present in Genesis. A new thing is revealed. So John says God's creation, it's not just the shaping of this world that God dwells in like a temple. Creation is actually more precious than that, even. It's actually the act of the infinite love of a personal God. It's made for relationships, and it comes out of relationships between God and his word. So God loves the world. Not just, he didn't just make it. He loves it, and he loves it so much, and he's so invested in the world and his desire to be living in it that he will actually come into the world himself, not just as a spiritual presence, but as a human being. So it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Um, And John would say perhaps, well, when Jesus Christ is born, that is the completion of creation. It's the end of creation. When Jesus was born, that seventh day comes. It says God will enter into his creation and rest with it and be part of its life. I think we often make a mistake when we hear the words in the beginning at the start of the Bible. Um, Naturally, with that phrase, we initially think, about the history of the universe, its time, what happened right at the start of it, as opposed to what's happening now or what will happen at the end. But I think with John here and his, his interpretation, we start to see that the beginning in the Bible is actually not just the start of created time, you know. The beginning is not firstly when things started, it's where they come from. The beginning is where things come from. In Greek, the word beginning also means the source of things, the principle behind them. And so that beginning for John, the beginning of all things, is the heart of God and his word. So he says, you know, the word was with God in the beginning. Um, And so the son of God, the word, was of course not created at the beginning of time. But in the beginning, at the source of all things, he is there with God the Father. And things are created through him. Everything in creation comes from them. Everything begins with them. And the point of that for me is is that God is not just active in creation at a particular time in the history of the universe, whenever it might have started. God is also present at every moment of creation, working out his purposes. So every moment is the beginning, or every moment is coming from God. Now that's a big idea bit complicated, but I want to give you an analogy to help to understand it. It might be helpful to think of the universe that we're in as like a novel. 
um, and God as the author of that novel. So if you think about a novel or a story, where does it, where does it actually begin? Does it begin on page one, you know, when you, when you open it up and start reading? In some ways, yes, but no, it actually begins in the mind and intention of the author. You know, when you read a story, you don't expect that when you go back through the story, you'll find the author appearing on page one. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, for instance, how far, if you go back to the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, as I often do, um, you find J.R.R. Tolkien in the story there, he's not there. But, in fact, he's everywhere in it. The author is actually present at every point of the story, aren't they? Um, beginning it and, and, and bringing it to life. And they're continually creating and sustaining the story until it reaches its end. And I think that's what creation actually means for Christians in the end. So underneath the history of our cosmos, whatever that history is, we believe that there's the wisdom of God, God's love, God's power, um, always upholding and sustaining everything at every point. Um, and the purpose of this ongoing creation is that he can enter into it to live with us and he appears within it actually in, in the story as Jesus and he wants to live in this temple with us. And so I think that's the beginning of creation. That's where it comes from, God's heart. It's also the end, because that's where we're going. Um, and so today, as we go out, I want to just think, well, as you look around at the universe we're in, what, what do you actually see? What's the point of this? I think the Bible says what we're looking at when we look around us is actually a temple. We're looking at a spiritual home that's been created by God for his good purposes. Uh, and therefore, everything has meaning, everything has significance, and there's an intrinsic goodness to everything we see. Um, in a few weeks, we're going to think about the complications to that picture, you know, and the difficulties in the rest of the story. But, you know, even the bad things in creation are still all just surrounded on every side by the goodness of God and his love for creation still. So that's the vision I'd like us to take away as we read and start on thinking creation together. I want to finish by reading to you a poem that um, expresses this really well. It's a famous poem by a Christian poet, a man named Gerard Manley Hopkins, and he gives a biblical vision of creation, I think. So let me read it. Some of you will have heard this before. It's common at school to look at it. So Hopkins says, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil, crushed. Why do men now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with our bright wings. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. So let me pray as we take that vision away with us today. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us in this uh, part of scripture a vision of the world that we live in that assures us of your goodness, your love for us, your purposes. We pray as we meditate on that today and in the weeks to come that you would bless us with an, uh, a true vision of what the world is around us and in us. And I pray that we would know your presence at every point. And I pray that this would change the way we feel and think about the, th the world we live in and the way we treat each other and our relationship to you. 
and I pray that creation would be a real meaning and invested and deeply in our heart. And we thank you for Christ who reveals to us your true purposes for us all. So I pray this in his name. Amen.